0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today.
1: This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn.
2: That's audible.com slash WonderyPod, or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
0: I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, the high-stakes diplomatic drama over the Chinese spy balloon is intensifying as we learn more about what the Chinese may have discovered from their soaring surveillance. In the end, it took a missile fired from an F-22 fighter jet flying over the South Carolina coast to shoot down the gigantic surveillance balloon that had floated across the U.S. 60,000 feet above ground. Wow! Ah! Recovery efforts are underway to determine just what the Chinese had attached to that balloon. The Saturday shootdown marked the end of a tense week for the Biden administration. You were saying the
3: recommendation from your, was from your national security. I told them to shoot it down.
4: On Wednesday. On Wednesday. But the recommendation. They said him. to me, let's wait till the safest place to do it.
0: We'll ask Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz how the incident will impact our already strained relationship with China. Then, following the brutal beating of Tyree Nichols by the Memphis police, we'll take a look at efforts to renew police reform with New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. Plus, how will the new 53-year low in unemployment impact the Fed's moves to lower inflation? We'll hear from Gary Cohn, who led the National Economic Council under former President Trump. Finally, ahead of Tuesday's State of the Union Address, four new House members weigh in on the prospects of action on crime, immigration, and spending in this divided Congress. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation, Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. Well, it was a drama that had all the signs of a Hollywood movie. The end of the Chinese spy balloon's journey was somewhat predictable, but what happens next is still very much up in the air. According to the White House, the balloon was detected a week ago in Alaskan airspace and was not assessed to be an intel risk or threat. It then drifted through Canadian airspace, moving southeast, and was spotted in Montana, home to a U.S. nuclear missile base, where it turned into a very public diplomatic crisis. Beijing insisted the balloon was an airship gathering weather data that had just drifted off course. Secretary of State Blinken abruptly canceled his trip to China, a visit intended to thaw icy relations between the two countries. Many lawmakers, mostly Republicans, expressed frustration with the administration for not taking action earlier. But the president stuck with the Pentagon's recommendation to wait until the balloon moved offshore and away from civilians still within U.S. waters. Now the debris from that balloon as well as what the Chinese learned from the mission is of huge interest. The Chinese government issued a scathing reaction to the shootdown, stating they strongly disapprove and that it was a clear overreaction and a serious violation of international practice and warned that Beijing reserves the right to make further responses. we want going to bring in our David Martin for more on this story. David, the Pentagon says this is part of a fleet of balloons and that it was surveilling sensitive military sites. Do we have a sense of the damage?
4: Well, the Pentagon claims that there was no real damage because most of this intelligence they already collected with the satellites that uh, China sends over the U.S. every day. But it loitered over an American intercontinental ballistic missile field in Montana, and it was fitted with what the uh, Pentagon says were cameras and antennas. And you have to believe that they picked up something or it wouldn't have been worth all of the uh, risk that they ran in sending a balloon over here that they knew was going to be detected. There's no way they could have believed that they could sneak that balloon Mm -hmm. uh, across the United States. So I think you have to assume that they got some intelligence uh, value out of it. Now I think you have to assume that the US got some intelligence value out of it because they sent planes up to photograph uh, that uh, sensor pod that was on the balloon and they've got videotapes of it. So they, the US was essentially watching China, Mm -hmm. watch us. And uh, it's all spy versus spy stuff. And you know, over time the spy versus spy stuff just tends to cancel itself up. One day you're up and the next day you're down.
0: Well, what can you actually see from 60,000 feet? What's the advantage?
4: Well, you know, um, back in the day, I actually went up to 60,000 feet in a uh, the back seat of a U-2. And up there, it's not just like being in an airline or only higher. You can actually see the curvature of the Earth. And you're in a plane that is filled with cameras, which have obviously a much higher resolution than the human eye. And they're not looking just straight down, they're looking out and all around them. Mm -hmm. And they're sending those pictures up to a satellite, which is then relaying it uh, down to a ground station where uh, an intelligence analyst is watching in real time. The U-2 is a great intelligence collection platform. It's got one problem. Anybody with a missile that can get up to 60,000 feet can shoot it down, and of course that turned out to be the uh, balloons problem as well,
0: which indicates this, this could be a problem. But you know the message from the administration to date has been um, that this wasn't really a threat. It did throw off that attempt to reset relations with Beijing, um, and that could have some big implications. If diplomats are really trying to lower the tension, but you see in that Chinese statement, there's some edge.
4: Well. They say, uh, we reserve the right for further responses. So let's see what those further responses are. Are they going to send another balloon? Um, Is the U.S. going to shoot it down right away? Or, I think more importantly, are they going to start some serious harassment of these American reconnaissance planes that fly around the periphery of China? They've already been buzzing them, and the the U.S. has already been filing uh, diplomatic complaints about it. Um, Mm -hmm. I would not want to be flying the next mission around the periphery of China. And the question is, will the U.S. provide armed escorts for those reconnaissance planes? And what happens if some uh, Chinese fighters show up and you have a confrontation?
0: David, always sobering to talk to you. Thank you for your reporting. We want to go now to Dallas, Texas, where we are joined by Republican Senator Ted Cruz. Good morning to you, Senator. Good morning, Margaret. Uh, So this balloon traversed uh, 11 states, um, but the Pentagon says they were able to mitigate some of its uh, impact. Do you think there is an upside to the fact that this was captured this time?
5: Well, listen, I I wanna start by doing something that I don't do very often, uh, which is commending Joe Biden for actually having the guts to shoot this down. That was the right thing to do. That is absolutely what the president should have done. Unfortunately, he didn't do that until a week after it entered U.S. airspace. He allowed a full week for the Chinese to conduct spying operations over the United States, over sensitive military installations, exposing not just photographs but the potential of intercepted communications. And and more broadly, I, I think this entire episode uh, telegraphed weakness to Xi and the Chinese government. And and. To illustrate why, I would just ask one one hypothetical question. Imagine how this would have played out if nobody had taken any pictures of the balloon, if nobody in Montana had looked Mm -hmm. up and noticed this giant balloon, if it wasn't in the news. We know that when the Biden administration knew about the balloon, they said nothing, they did nothing, they didn't shoot it down. And at the end of the day, I think the only reason they shot it down is because it made it into the news and they felt forced to as a matter of politics rather than national security. That's a bad message for the Chinese government to hear.
0: Well, the Pentagon has since disclosed that it's apparently happened four times before. Never quite like this. Back in 2020, Trump administration shuttered the Chinese consulate in Houston uh, after detecting espionage. Do you think there needs to be more diplomatic fallout on that scale now?
5: Look, I I think there does when, when, when the Trump administration shut the Chinese consulate in Houston, I spoke with the secretary of state, Mike Pompeo about it and what they had discovered about the espionage activities being carried out in the state of Texas by the Chinese government was horrifying. Right now there is a Texan, Mark Swedan, who is a political prisoner. He is a hostage in China. He's been there for 10 years. This past week I introduced a resolution on the floor of the Senate, along with John Cornyn, Calling yeah. on China to release Mark Swedan. He's wrongfully imprisoned. He's been there ten years. They've sentenced him to death on charges for which they have little to no evidence. Yeah. And and I had been urging Tony Blinken when he was going to Beijing to raise Mark Swedan's case and to make yes. the case for Mark to be released. China, if they want to demonstrate that they're not bad actors, if they want to demonstrate that they can aspire to being a great nation, they should release Mark Swidan because great nations and yeah. great powers don't hold political prisoners.
0: And he is wrongfully detained, according to the State Department. This was raised to Xi Jinping yes. in November, and there there hasn't been a release to date. Um, thank you for mentioning that. But I want to ask you about your role. You are the top Republican on the Senate Commerce uh, Committee. You're also a dad. I know you know how hard it is to keep kids offline in this app called yeah. TikTok. Um, It's been downloaded 200 million times. I know you think it's espionage. Are are we at the point where we're past a ban, where this is just so embedded that you can't get rid of it?
5: Yeah, look, TikTok is incredibly concerning. You're you're right with our kids. If you have teenagers, if you have kids in junior high or high school, they're all using it. And, And the degree to which they have infiltrated our children is really disturbing. There are lots of problems with it. There are problems in terms of the messages that they're pushing on young kids, body image messages where for for girls in particular, you have problems with eating disorders where they push one message after another. you have messages of self-harm where the algorithms push self-harm messages on on young girls and we're seeing really disturbing figures among teenagers. And then on top of that, you've got the espionage risk. The Chinese communist government has access to all of the information TikTok collects. I think it is a serious, serious threat. I'll tell you on the Commerce Committee, yeah. I, I've already sat down with each of the Republican members on the committee to ask them their priorities. And there was consensus on this side of the aisle that focusing seriously on TikTok is a, a real ban. priority. And I think there are a lot of Democrats who are very concerned about it as well.
0: As a ban or to force the sale of it?
5: Well, I I think all of the options are on the table and I I will tell you, I encourage Maria Cantwell, the Democrat uh, chairwoman, that I think it makes sense early on for us to have a hearing on TikTok and examine these harms very directly, how it's hurting our kids and how it's undermining national security. As I said, both Republicans and Democrats are very concerned about the impact of TikTok.
0: Should America restrict U.S. companies from investing in Chinese industries and key technology sectors?
5: Well, I, I think we should be doing a lot to de-link our supply chain from China, to make it so that we are not dependent on China. We saw during the pandemic when one of the major Chinese state-owned newspapers threatened to cut off life-saving pharmaceuticals, things like heart medication mm-hmm. that, that, that people depend upon. And, and it makes no sense for us to leave the lives of Americans at, at the whim of the Chinese government I'll tell you, in the last Congress, I introduced an amendment on the floor of the Senate to block the United States government from purchasing electric vehicles or batteries that were manufactured using slave labor in concentration camps in China. China has over 1 million Uyghurs in, in concentration camps. And Margaret, sadly, when we voted on it, every Democrat but one, every Democrat but Joe Manchin voted no. And right now, the Biden administration is one of the largest customers in the world for the concentration camps that are carrying on murder and torture right now in China. That doesn't make any sense,
0: and it's not right. No. Uh, Senator, I want to ask you about something here at home. You also introduced a bill to limit uh, terms to two six-year terms in office for senators. Um, Why aren't you holding yourself to that standard? You said you're running for a third term.
5: Well, listen, I'm a passionate defender of term limits. I think that Congress would work much better if every senator were limited to two terms, if every House member were limited to three terms. I've introduced a constitutional amendment to put that into the Constitution. But you're still running. if and when it passes, if and when it passes, I will happily, happily comply. I've never said I'm going to unilaterally comply. I'll tell you what, when the are socialists for and when the swamp are ready to leave Washington, I will be more than happy to comply by the same rules that apply for everyone. But until then, yeah. I'm going to keep fighting for 30 million Texans because that's the you job me, they've asked me to do.
0: I think you heard me ask if you're running for president.
5: I'm running for reelection to the Senate. There's a reason I'm in Texas today. I'm not in Iowa. I'm in Texas and I'm fighting for 30 million Texans.
0: All right. Thank you very much, Senator Cruz, for your time today. We turn now to Democratic Senator Cory Booker in Newark, New Jersey. Good morning to you, Senator.
6: Good morning. Thank you for having me on.
0: I want to start on uh, the news of the moment. Um, Mark Warner, fellow Democrat, chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, tweeted, there is no way the Communist Party of China would allow a balloon like this to fly over the Chinese heartland. I wonder if you personally are concerned that it was allowed to enter U.S. airspace at all.
6: Well, again, Mark Warner is right. We should not have had Uh, this kind of incursion into the United States. And we have a real problem with China on a number of issues, uh, from their human rights violations to their violations of international uh, business law, uh, to even uh, the challenges we've had with them on overt spying. So uh, I'm grateful that the military took decisive action when they did and how they did. uh, But we obviously have issues here.
0: Uh, And and the issues with espionage, as you just indicated, go into a number of different areas. Um, Due to national security concerns, Congress had banned TikTok, for example, the social media app, on federal devices. Your home state of New Jersey has also put restrictions in place. But you still use it personally. Um, Does that mean that you think it's too late to go ahead and, and ban this? It's already on 200 million American devices Is it just so integrated that that espionage is something we have to live with?
6: No, absolutely not. And I think there's two ways to approach this. One, uh, the proactive step of banning it on government devices is something that the United States federal government's doing, states and even localities are doing. But the other way to go about this is going directly to the company. They are now working with uh, U.S. intelligence folks to try to make sure uh, that the proper precautions are taken so the Chinese cannot get access and use it for spying. So this is something we have to take seriously.
0: I want to ask you about the meeting you had with fellow Democrats at the White House on Thursday in regard to police reform. What agreements did you all come up with? And is it anything you can get Republicans to sign on to?
6: Well, first of all, I want to again express my condolences to the family of Tyree Nichols. This was a really horrific murder. We saw a man on the ground, uh, handcuffed, being beaten and eventually die as a result of his wounds. Uh, This should not happen in the United States of America. And so I'm I'm grateful that the president has taken decisive action in the last Congress with a executive order, but it falls to Congress uh, to find a bipartisan way forward, uh, to make sure that we are doing what is necessary to raise police standards and professionalism, Mm -hmm. to create more transparency and accountability in American policing. I believe we can find a way forward. It is gonna be more difficult in a divided Congress, uh, but I believe that a moment like this, a moral moment like this, requires decisive action.
0: Well, uh, we've been through moral moments before, and negotiations have failed, as they did when you were talking to your Republican colleague, Tim Scott, back in 2021. He says that this Pro- House Progressive's police reform bill, I assume he means George Floyd Act, it won't go anywhere, but he has given an impassioned speech saying he wants solutions that would have made a difference, specifically more grants, more de-escalation training, and duty-to-intervene training. Is this a starting point? for talks.
6: Absolutely. I mean, I've been talking to people on both sides of the aisle on both sides of the Capitol in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. There is a pathway forward, and I'm going to be tireless and not stop until we do significant things to make Americans safer and to make our policing standards higher. And I'm not standing alone on this. Uh, The fact that we have police leaders, uh, the largest union that represents the majority of police. Uh, that we have been able to come together on bipartisan ideals, uh, I think there's a pathway forward, although I'm very sobered in a divided Congress, about our ability to get it done.
0: Are you talking to Tim Scott now about this?
6: I, I don't think Tim Scott and I have stopped talking. Let's be clear. Tim and I have been a proven partnership. We've we walked away from the, to- from, from, the from the talks
0: from the- a year ago. So, so you did stop negotiating. Are you renewing those negotiations?
6: Again, uh, Tim and I have not stopped talking. We're guys that have gotten uh, the Opportunity Zone legislation done. We've gotten criminal justice reform done. Uh, we may have stopped formal negotiations, but he and I are actually friends. Uh, we may be in different parties and disagree on a host of stuff. But the reality is we're two black men in America who've had really awful experiences with law enforcement uh, that law enforcement leaders say are mm-hmm. unjust. We're motivated.
0: One issue you put to the side back in 2021 was that really hard issue of qualified immunity, um, which is whether to hold individual officers accountable for or or the entire police department accountable um, civilly for police misconduct. Lindsey Graham tweeted that holding departments accountable makes sense because in America, if you run a business and produce a product, you're responsible for your actions. The same should be true for police departments. Is he offering you the start here of something?
6: You know I've, I've had conversations meetings with lindsey graham in this congress as well uh, he is somebody that agrees with me that there is common sense here you, you can't have co- accountability without consequences when things go wrong and we should definitely agree that the things we're seeing too often now because of body cameras and other filming have to stop in our country this is wrong and i'm happy Uh, that I have Republican Mm -hmm. uh, uh, colleagues that agree this is wrong and we're trying to work something out and I'm going to continue with it. And I'm grateful from the president of the United States uh, to members of the House of Representatives like the Congressional Black Caucus. We're determined to try to get something done. May it be a big comprehensive bill uh, in this Congress that might be hard, but we can find ways to do things that make things better.
0: Senator Booker, thank you for your time this morning. We'll be back in a minute. Stay with us. We've got some good news this week. Hiring surged last month, but there may be a downside. Mark Strassman reports.
7: Not since the Nixon era, May 1969. (laughs) Has an American president watched unemployment dwindle so low, 3.4%. Despite big tech's latest bloodbath, pink slips galore at Amazon, Google, and Microsoft, American labor overall added more than a half million jobs last month. We're gaining jobs, which is great, but in terms of like inflation, interest rates, definitely would love to see that improve over the next year. But the sizzling job market complicates the Fed's mission, bludgeon inflation with higher interest rates. Inflation's now at 6.5 percent compared to this time last year, down from the June peak of 9.1 percent. The Fed raised its benchmark rate by another quarter point last Wednesday, its eighth hike in 11 months. Expect rates to go up again in the months ahead we will need
8: substantially more evidence to be confident that inflation is on a sustained downward path.
7: Those latest economic developments do little to calm millions of Americans. Ahead of Tuesday's State of the Union address, our new CBS News poll shows ripples of anxiety. Six in 10 Americans believe the economy's condition is bad, pessimism that has been in place over the last year. Among all America's challenges, our poll says the top priority, lowering inflation. Three in four people said they worry about it the most.
9: I think you never fully stop holding your breath when you see prices going up.
7: Over the next year, our poll shows roughly 6 in 10 Americans expect the economy to be in recession or slowing. Many everyday Americans are sweating this economy. Instability generates insecurity. I feel like it's kind of falling apart. We need to rebuild it up. I don't know what the exact answer is. It's vexing because of all the guesswork involved for economists, for all of us. For Face the Nation, I'm Mark Strassman
0: in Atlanta. And we'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us.
9: This podcast is supported by FedEx.
10: Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
0: Be sure to tune in for special coverage of President Biden's State of the Union address Tuesday, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern on our streaming network and 9 p.m. on the CBS Broadcast Network. We'll be right back with Gary Cohn, who led the National Economic Council under former President Trump. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We want to turn now to the economy and that surprising jobs report for the month of January. We're joined by a former top economic advisor under the Trump administration, Gary Cohn, who is now the vice chairman of IBM. Good morning, good to have you back here.
11: Thanks for having me, Margaret.
0: So 517,000 new jobs, but a lot of companies, particularly in tech, are announcing layoffs. So exactly where is the economy headed?
11: So so it's interesting. We did see the 500,000 plus new jobs, which was quite surprising, I think, to many of us. But I think what we're actually seeing here is a renormalization of the new economy. A lot of the jobs that we saw were jobs in the service industry. The service industry is coming back very strong because we're starting to see the economy go back to what we historically think of the economy. For the first time, we've seen occupancy rates in offices in major cities over 50% when you see occupancy rates go up, you need the service sector to work. Think about people going back into the office. They need parking attendants. They need people to work in the buildings. They need security. They need people to c- clean the buildings. People stop for coffee when they go into the buildings. They go out to lunch. They go to bars. For, the, for that to happen, you need the service sectors to come back to work. So the 128,000 service sector employees that came back to work, that 100% correlates with people going back to what is the new normal. It may not be five days a week in the office, but it's enough days in the week in the office where you need the service sector to come back to work. The interesting thing about last month's uh, unemployment numbers is we brought people back to work, but we did not have to entice them with pay. So the monthly, the month over month number in wage gains was 30 basis points. The prior month, was 40 basis points. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing, we're getting people back into the labor force for a lower wage than we were prior to this.
0: And, to, I, and that's a little bit hopeful for you on the inflation yes, front.
11: Yeah. And I think this is natural. I think what, what we've seen is after all the stimulus that was put in the system over the last three months, people are running out of the stimulus monies. We saw that in the fourth quarter of last year. Mm-hmm. We saw consumer spending slow down. We saw debit balances on credit cards go up. We started to see delinquencies go up. And you know what happened? people actually did the right thing and they went back to work. They reengaged and they reentered the workforce. And I think we saw a lot of that in the January numbers.
0: So these more positive signs have led Bank of America, for example, to say recession still in the cards, but not until after March. Um, I I wonder what your thoughts are on that. And as CEOs warn about borrowing costs going up as a result of the Fed hiking, they are tightening belts. So, How far off is this recession?
11: Well, we've got a couple of phenomena going on. Interest rates have been going up. So borrowing costs have been going up for companies. On the flip side, dollar has been weakening. So the multinational corporations in the United States who repatriate earnings from offshore, those repatriated earnings have become more valuable. Mm -hmm. I think the people that have been really worried about a recession in the first and second quarter of this year, I think after what we've seen this week with both Chairman Powell's announcements and the the data in unemployment, I think that recession is off the table for Q&1 Q2 this year. You know, we're going to get another uh, employment report before the next Fed meeting, Mm -hmm. and we'll see where the economy is going. But it does feel like we're in relatively good shape here. The question is going to be, how does the Federal Reserve handle what's going on in the economy? Are we going to continue to have to increase wages to draw people back in the labor force, or are people coming back in the labor force because they need to and we're not going to have wage inflation? If that happens, the Federal Reserve is actually in a very good place.
0: Let me ask you about something the Fed uh, chair said this week. He said Congress has to lift this debt ceiling. I'm throwing one of the things that could screw up your your rosy prediction at you. He said no one should assume that the Fed can protect the economy from the consequences of failing to act in a timely manner. He's warning He's not making plans for a default. You're on your own if it happens. Yes. Should there be a plan for the Fed to step in? I mean, (laughs) I know legally it's in question here, but I I talk to people on Capitol Hill who say Wall Street's not taking this seriously enough. The politics are really bad around the debt ceiling.
11: The politics are very bad. You know, the one thing is every American, every American is holding the U.S. government to raise the debt ceiling. The full faith and credit of the U.S. dollar and the U.S. dollar being the reserve currency, is imperative to our economic well-being as a country. We ultimately have to get the debt ceiling raised. That said, what's going on here is not something out of the ordinary. If you look at debt ceiling raises over the last 40 or 50 years, no matter which party is in the minority, about 50% of the time, debt ceiling raises come with some amendments attached attached to them from the other party. So this is quite normal, the process that we're going you, through.
0: You don't sound overly concerned.
11: Like, I'm always concerned when we're dealing with debt ceiling, but I have a feeling that we will get there in the end when yeah. we have no other choice. You had the speaker here last week, and, and he felt confident that we would get there when we had it, no other choice. Mm-hmm. The speaker met with the president of the United States this week. The two of them came out of the meeting relatively confident. I feel they both understand there is no choice. In the end of the day, we have to raise the debt ceiling. The question is, can the Republicans get something in the legislation attached to the debt ceiling legislation yeah. that they want, that they feel like is a win, and the Democrats are willing to give it to them. Historically, that is what's yeah. happened numerous times.
0: Yeah, and, and the risk there is real. Um, I want to ask you as well about China. Mark Warner was here uh, with us last week, and he said technology competition with China is the biggest issue of our time. He's worried about things that, like your company does, yes. IBM, yeah. in terms of uh, quantum computing. It is enough being done to keep. America competitive on that front?
11: Well, we're starting. You know, if you look at where we've been this year, you know, we passed the Chips Act in the United States, which you know is 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 something that's not a normal motion for us in the United States for the federal government to pick and to choose an, an industry yeah. and to subsidize it it really is not a normal action it's an action that you know historically I probably not would have been have supportive i was extremely supportive of the chips act we at ibm were extremely supportive of the chips act if we learn nothing else from the pandemic we learn that there are certain goods that are necessity goods for this country to have. And we are overly reliant on places like China. And if we don't find ways to change the manufacturing system and the supply chain and move it back to the United States where we can take care of ourselves, we have made a a catastrophic miscalculation. CHIPS yeah. ARE ONE OF THOSE AREAS WHERE WE CANNOT DEPEND ON THE REST OF THE WORLD AND RUN OUR MANUFACTURING BUSINESS AND CONTINUE TO GROW OUR ECONOMY. PHARMACEUTICALS IS yeah. ANOTHER AREA WHERE WE REALLY HAVE TO MOVE THAT INDUSTRY AND THAT MANUFACTURING BACK TO THE UNITED STATES. SO I THINK WE REALLY HAVE TO EVALUATE WHAT ARE THE MOST CRUCIAL AND SENSITIVE BUSINESSES OR INDUSTRIES yeah. THAT WE CANNOT LIVE WITH IN THE UNITED STATES AND WE'RE GOING TO HAVE TO MAKE REAL INVESTMENTS IN THOSE HERE IN THIS COUNTRY.
0: And we'll keep talking about it with legislators to figure out how to pass some of those laws. Uh, But we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be talking with four members of the freshman class in the 118th Congress.
2: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.
0: Joining us now for a look at the new Congress, a group of freshman House members. Congressman Robert Garcia is the president of the Democratic freshman class. He's from the state of California. Gentleman next to him is New York Republican Congressman Mike Lawler. Congresswoman Summer Lee is a Democrat, and she is from the state of Pennsylvania. And Congressman Zach Nunn is a Republican from Iowa. So I want to talk about some of the things you all think you can get done here in Washington. Congressman Lawler, um, the former Speaker Nancy Pelosi recently told the New York Times that uh, Democrats could have held on to the House if uh, New York politicians had realized earlier on that crime was such a key motivating Uh, issue. In the last Congress, they greenlit about $4 billion in grants for local law enforcement. Do you think that money now needs to be accompanied by some kind of reform, something more on crime?
3: Here in Washington, there's a lot of uh, bipartisan support, I think, for especially making sure that law enforcement has the resources they need uh, and the training that they need to do their jobs effectively. Um, I think, obviously, uh, the situation in Memphis with Tyree Nichols is a, a horrifying example, but I think there's a lot of area where we can work together to address the rise in crime and why we are seeing such a rise across the country. Like what? You have to look at what are some of the root causes of why, uh, you know, we're seeing such an increase in, in crime, gang activity. Uh, obviously, you see the scourge of fentanyl pouring into our communities, uh, drugs being dealt Uh, that are having a devastating impact. So I think there is a lot of area where we can work together Mm -hmm. uh, to address these challenges.
0: What about you, Congressman? This is your party in the majority. Four billion in grants just went to local law enforcement. Does Congress need to do anything more to address crime?
8: When I was chair of judiciary at the state level, Iowa moved very aggressively after the George Floyd homicide. We immediately said that we were going to allow our attorney general to investigate crimes directly so that we weren't waiting on county attorneys. We made sure that bad law enforcement officers couldn't be cycled through without some kind of a background check. We made sure that we made a direct investment in mental health across the state and made sure that our regional, both our urban, but also our rural communities had access to that. And ultimately, we also worked with our law enforcement to make sure that law enforcement had a better relationship with the community rather than one of conflict. There's some tangible successes we've seen at state levels. Let's bring those up to the federal level and make sure they can work the same way.
0: So you do want to see more? legislation
8: on. Yeah, I think there's absolutely more that needs to be done. This. What doesn't need to be done are what I will call these fig leaf grants. The idea that we can just hire more minority officers in rural Iowa. That is a very challenging thing to do. We should be identifying and we saw tragically even in Memphis that that alone is not a a silver bullet solution. We've really got to get to the effort of, you know, good policing, but also recognizing when there is good law enforcement. We hold that up as a partner in a community. That's where this money could be going, and it needs to be accountable. I think far too much of this has gone to, you know, some major metropolitan areas which have seen actually crime spike in those neighborhoods.
0: Congresswoman, you said um, it would be good to revive the George Floyd Policing Act, but we're so far past that right now, we really need to kind of escalate the conversation faster. What do you mean? What are you calling for?
12: So— Let me be really clear, there is a proliferation of disinformation and bias in conversations about crime and conversations about policing. And to be very clear, police violence is crime. We cannot say that we care about crime, but then do nothing, choose to do nothing over and over and over when the crime is committed by a police officer. There are statistics that show that less than two percent of police officers who are engaged in a misconduct are ever indicted at all. And while we can all celebrate that five black police officers, right, and it let it not escape us, that it was only when they were black that there was swift action and there was a sixth who was not black and there was not swift action. Um, that we can say that Tyree should be alive, so should Atatiana Jefferson, so should Antoine Rose II from my district, so should Mike Brown, so should uh, Philando Castile. Mm-hmm. They should all be alive. So, when we're talking about crime and we're talking about how we're going to solve it, when I say that we need to change the conversation, we need to acknowledge that Public safety does not begin with policing. Public safety begins with investments. It begins with addressing our own implicit and explicit biases in policymaking and education
0: and appropriations. So when the president talks about reviving George Floyd Policing Act, you're saying not as it's currently written. You want more measures. Absolutely.
12: I want us to be intentional at every step about addressing uh racial bias, about addressing poverty, about addressing crime, and about addressing police
13: violence. I think Representative Lee is absolutely right. and so I would vote, vote for the George Floyd Policing Act if it was on the floor tomorrow, but more needs to be done. Additional it won't be put be on taken. the floor
0: tomorrow under Republican <laughs> leadership, uh, absolutely. to be clear. and that's
13: why I want to be clear but also with our, when our colleagues bring up that more should be done uh, around this issue. The truth is that you look at a place like California and most of the country, we are actually safer today than we were 15, 20, or 30 years ago, statistically. And so there's a lot of... Um, concerns around crime, and there should be. We all want to be safe. But I also think we also got to look at the data and actually look at the facts. The truth is that every single election cycle, it just seems that there is a lot of focus on crime and in inner cities. And, and, and the truth is that we are safer than we were 20 or 30 years
0: but ago. But there was silent so in in, crime. In, in, New York
3: State, in New York State in particular, the reason there was a focus on crime by voters is because they didn't feel safe. You had people being pushed in front of oncoming subway cars. You had be- people being mm-hmm. stabbed in the street. By the way, the vast majority of victims of crime are black and brown people. So to act as though it, there, there's not a crime issue uh, I think is, is dismissing the fact that it is serious and people do not feel safe. And so, yes, we need to address the root causes of why someone may turn towards crime or why they may find themselves as part of a gang. Uh, but we also need to hold people accountable with the decisions that they make. And I think part of the problem here is that oftentimes it is very uh, easy to go say law enforcement bad, but the vast majority of people who are in law enforcement are good people. I come from a a community that has strong law enforcement presence. 50% of, of households in my district have a cop, a firefighter, a first responder, or a veteran in them. They're good people, and they want to do right by our communities. The vast and majority
12: of people in poor and working-class neighborhoods are good people. They are. And they are victims they are. of crime that we don't say anything about. For instance, exactly. they for, like to be for, for instance, there is no police presence when they're, when they're a victim of waste theft. We we're not seeing anybody. You know what, I passed legisla- pass legislation. That's awesome. And I would to like to see it that. happening here. And because it do be see When we're talking about crime, we're really talking about white collar crime. We're really talking about ways in which we're going to hold corporate criminals accountable. We're really taking any strides mm-hmm. in any level of government to do anything about that. But we continue to talk about the crimes of desperation and particularly the crimes in marginalized communities.
0: I want to ask you about some other issues, immigration and border security. It has been years and there has been a failure to legislate on this. What's going to be different in a split Congress now? Do you see hope for this?
8: I do, I, I really do. The challenge right now is until we secure the border, we have a really porous situation where the folks who are coming here illegally are jumping ahead of the folks who are coming here legally. The folks who have set up shop in America and want to be good citizens are finding themselves outfoxed by fe- people who are being encouraged to come here illegally. And it's not like everybody has the chance, it's those who can get here.
13: Most Republicans in this Congress have been disingenuous on immigration. I'm an immigrant. I came yep. to the U.S. when I was a young kid. I had the privilege and honor of becoming a American in my early 20s. I am grateful to this country. I love this country. Immigrants love this country. They just want an opportunity to be here, a pathway to citizenship. But you're talking about Dreamers. program. You're
0: talking about border security. Right. You, I mean, there are different you can do aspects both. of this. You can, you what can part of this can get through in this Congress? Which piece? So I, I,
13: well, I would, I would like I would all hope of the that above. Both could be yeah, a, I, I, yeah, yeah, done. yeah
8: done. I agree Here's with you on the that. Thing.
13: The thing <laughs> is, is that unfortunately, we there's this myth that Democrats somehow aren't concerned about a secure border, that we don't want an orderly process. But we also want to ensure that we want secure everybody wants a secure border, but we also want to ensure that we're talking about the humanity of people. These are people that are coming to this country that are desperate, that are suffering. And so this idea that we can't give these people justice, we can't support and help them, I think is anti-American. And I am hopeful, like some of you, I have talked to some Republicans on the other side that have an interest in a broader immigration reform package. And that's something that I hope that we can all work on.
3: My, My wife is an immigrant as well. And she came to this country about a decade ago in search of economic opportunity. She comes from Eastern Europe, a former Soviet satellite state. The bottom line here is this. We embrace immigration. All right. But we have to have a legal process. We need to secure the border. We need to increase border patrol. We need to increase the number of judges and court personnel to hear asylum cases. Nobody should be waiting two to three years to hear an asylum case with the hope that they may come back for the court hearing. That's insane. And then we need to fix the legal immigration process so that people who want to come here Mm -hmm. can do so legally and contribute to our communities, to our culture, to our economy. And I think there can be broad bipartisan Uh, agreement on this if everybody is willing to kind of give a little. Both sides have failed on immigration Mm -hmm. for years, for years. This is not one party or the other. Both sides have failed miserably here. And we have a situation that is unsustainable.
0: I want to move on to, to governance and debt. Can I see a show of hands? Are you all confident that America will avoid defaulting on its debt? Yes, yes. Show of hands. I'd like to think so. I hope so. You are you're confident we will avoid the cliff.
3: We we absolutely will. The bottom line is this. We have incurred debt previously. We have an obligation to pay that. We will lift the debt ceiling.
0: Do you believe that some of your Republican colleagues who have been very in in a very different place on this um, will come along? And that the party... Uh,
3: absolutely. But, but here's the point I would make. Over, over the past many decades, major spending reform has been tied to the debt ceiling. OK, so the White House needs to recognize one thing. One-party rule in Washington is over. They need to negotiate with the Speaker in good faith to come to a long-term agreement that puts us on the path to fiscal solvency.
0: Social Security, health care, including Medicare, Medicaid, and then defense are the three biggest line items. Where do you cut? If you have to have this conversation, where do you cut?
12: Defense. The reality is is that we can't keep asking the same people to compromise over and over and over. When we talk about these conversations, we have to humanize
13: them. We have to be very clear what we are proposing to cut, who are going to be impacted by it. What we've actually been spending all this money on is actually getting our country back on track. We just went through the single largest loss of life event in, in the modern era of our country. We lost over a million Americans. We spent money trying to keep people alive. We spent money trying to keep businesses afloat. We spent money to ensure that people were housed, people that were, needed support. And so, yes, we spent, there was significant spending, but it was spending to respond to this incredible pandemic. And so this idea- I respectful and you're this saying like,
8: government's the solution for this. I'm saying states like Iowa, they opened back uh, up. Uh, well, people we're, were the solution. We're,
13: we're, we're in the business of government. Well, so of course help. government is-, is Absolutely. Is so, so let's, and, With and, respect, as far, right? and as far as, as, far as the, this, this unity amongst Republicans around the debt ceiling, the truth is there is no unity. Uh, we're not. The Democrats are united. Not our we're conference. not going to cut Social Security. <laughs> we're not going to cut Medicare. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm interested to know how we're going to get to this resolution. so that Because we know that this, this issue, at the end of the day, impacts working people the most.
0: So the discretionary spending you would cut is also in defense? Uh, listen, I think just first what, just kidding I, kidding. if it was up to
13: me, we'd be raising taxes on, billi- on, on billionaires and corporations. That's how we'd be getting more, more, more support. But I think uh, Representative Lee is right. I think we have to be able to look at an institution uh, like the Pentagon.
8: So right. let's be very clear here. If somebody Not is looking all. for an opportunity to <laughs> go to college— they have the opportunity to serve in the military, and it will help pay for them to have the privilege of going to college. What I will not do is see members of the military who are on the front line defending our very opportunity to even mm-hmm. go to college have their paychecks cut or their opportunity to defend themselves cut because of lackluster equipment. Well, mean, the I military, there is a difference between— our our no, military. A, no, no, no. You said Pell Grants versus military. Let's humanize, humanize it. it.
12: Let's, let's humanize There's a difference between sending our, our troops uh, somewhere defenseless and then looking at our defense budget. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is so the highest of the next what, 20 countries combined.
3: Right. We're not and, saying and that we're sending. continually forced yeah, so, to defend the world. With,
12: right. endless, with, endless, the wars, with exactly. endless wars. With endless wars. But you not, know, Speaker McCarthy, now, on this maker.
0: program last week, yeah. said when it came to cutting discretionary spending, actually one of the places he would look to trim fat was the Defense Department. You don't sound like you're okay with that.
8: So let's let's take, first of all, what he did say is take things off the table. We're gonna protect Social Security. People have paid into that. They deserve to have that back. Republicans are committed to that. Let's take the Medicare that has gone out there to make sure that people have access to the healthcare they need to be successful off the table. When it comes to defense spending, what I just heard was cutting things across the board. If there a review, everything should have the opportunity to be assessed.
0: So you're on board. But overall, you I'm really demanding. To cut?
8: What? overall, yeah, I think what? we should be looking across the board. And I would also say, yeah. here's <laughs> where we have been successful in a state like Iowa that has the number okay. one growth rate, is that we don't spend more than we take in. But who and are we going spend... No, the no, way, it's
1: not about because cutting. Because she asked me, who are we cutting? Here, here's, yeah. here's oh, how about we grow the economy the problem to, problem 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 to begin with? We haven't had a real
3: budget process in a very long time. And you have to go line by line, and you need these departments and agencies to justify their spending. They have not had to do that. Right. in a very long time we need a real budget process sure. as part of this negotiation Sure, right? which
0: takes time we're going to have to leave it there thank you all for coming in and i want to thank each and every one of you for joining our panel
8: thanks, thank you. thanks for having
0: thank us you. Thanks. that's it for us today thank you for watching for face the nation i'm margaret brennan Today's guests were Republican Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, Democratic Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey, former top economic advisor under President Trump, Gary Cohn, and a bipartisan panel of new members of Congress with representatives Robert Garcia, Zach Nunn, Summer Lee, and Mike Lawler. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+.
1: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, Survivor's back, and so is on fire, the only official Survivor Podcast, and we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D.Vayadaris. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor Podcast, wherever you get your podcast.
10: Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News Business Analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch Podcast